fintech business podcast i'm pleased to bring you this episode discussing what's next for banking as a service recorded live at barclays rise during new york fintech week many thanks to valley bank and unit for sponsoring the discussion and thanks to my panelists amanda swoverlin of unit walt cox of valley bank Nipa patel of themis and nick farrow of modern treasury the audio is a little bit less than ideal but it's worth bearing with it as it was a fantastic discussion with that, here's the conversation on what's next for banking as a service. All right, everyone, gather around. We're going to talk about banking as a service. Get your beverages, get your seats. We'll get started here in just uh, just a second. I think we have a quorum. Um, I did want to start by thanking our sponsors, Valley Bank and Unit. Wouldn't be possible without you if we can get a round of applause. Uh, also, Rise for hosting us and Empire Fintech for sort of coordinating the overarching Fintech week here in New York. Um, since I originally pitched this idea, I don't think there's been any really big, big banking news at all. Nothing in the intervening couple of months that may change how we think about anything. Um, certainly not questioning any previously held assumptions we might have about bank business models or risk management and, and what the knock-on impacts might be. Uh, so I'm really glad to have a panel of expert practitioners from across the banking uh, and fintech ecosystem to speak to some of the questions facing banking as a service, uh, business models, regulatory compliance infrastructure you know, today and going forward. Um, I'd love if we could do like a very quick intro of each of you and also your companies and sort of where they fit in this banking as a service landscape. Uh, and I guess, Amanda, since you're sitting next to me, let's start with you. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Amanda Silverlin. I'm the Chief Compliance Officer at UNIT. Um, please don't be afraid that you're going to get a compliance lecture. I, I, I won't do that today. Uh, so I started my career over 20 years ago uh, as an examiner and have made my my way through um, working at banks and consulting and, and finally landed in tech in 2020 to help start building unit. Uh, prior to that, I was a chief risk officer at a sponsor bank. So I've kind of sat in the hot seat at a bank and had to answer all the, the tough questions from the regulators that, that came in. And uh, but since 2020, I've been helping uh, the big partners we work with and our clients navigate the uh, ever-changing regulatory landscape. Amazing. And speaking of dealing with a regulatory landscape, Nipa. Hi, everyone. My name is Nipa Patel. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Themis. We are a collaboration compliance tool for fintechs and banks. So for fintechs, we're a plug-and-play compliance department. For banks, we help accelerate fintech partnerships through our collaboration workspaces. Um, and prior to this, I was a, I have a very similar background to Amanda. I was a former regulator um, throughout the credit crisis, a lot of bank closings as part of that. Um, I was a compliance officer at a bank, um, and I faced regulators, and I'm like, and I also worked at a fintech as a chief compliance officer, and I'm like, wow, fintechs do not care about compliance at all. Um, so that's kind of what led me to create Themis. Nick? Hi, everybody. Nick Farrow. I lead bank partnerships at Modern Treasury. Um, we are a software platform that helps companies move and track money. So think fintechs, real estate, healthcare, any company that moves money as part of its product or service, uh, our software helps them uh, manage that from uh, from start to finish. My background, uh, I was I'm a recovering banker. Um, I 
spent many years at JP Morgan Chase, finally ending up on the FinTech coverage team, which is how I met Modern Treasury. Um, and uh, now I lead a team uh, of bank partnership managers who cover the relationship of all of our banks that we work with, which is approaching 30. Uh, so every aspect of the relationship from our go to market and sales with and partnership with banks all the way through to product um, connectivity and integrations and all the other things. And as I kind of joke, we're like one throat to choke when things break at a bank, people inside our company come to us to try to get to a, to a solution. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, Walt. Uh, yeah, I did turn it on. Uh, I'm Walt Cox. Uh, I lead partner banking for Valley Bank. Uh, I also lead our cannabis team. Um, partner banking is a new group uh, inside of Valley. Uh, we've signed two fintechs so far. Um, and we're starting to expand into some other use cases outside uh, third-party sender sponsorship, looking at banking as a service, as well as some wallet services. Uh, I'll probably talk about at some point. Uh, before I joined Valley, I was early at uh, a company called Move Financial, and before that, I was early at a company called Rapid. Helped them grow. I think I was the 16th hire there. Um, and before that, I ran payments at a five billion dollar credit union. So. Amazing. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, I wanted to start by doing some level setting, right? People have heard the term banking as a service as uh, ad nauseum at this point, no doubt. Uh, but I find that some people have differing definitions of sort of what, what that encompasses. Um, so actually, Walt, as the uh, representative for all of banking sitting up here on the stage today, you know, how do you think about defining what constitutes banking as a service? Who are the various stakeholders? You know, how do you think about that from, from the seat that you sit in on the bank side? So there's a few questions in that. So I'll, so I'll talk about the first, which is how we define banking as a service. So, uh, so, uh, so I wrote this pretty lengthy Twitter thread, kind of breaking this down, because I have wrestled with this in multiple iterations, both being on the fintech side and then now being on the bank side with a national charter. So. The way we're breaking it down is in two regards. So you can have a direct banking as a service model where at the end of the day, the contract is held between the bank and the fintech. It's what I would call a three-party model. So the user sits underneath the fintech, the fintech contracts directly with the bank. Bank holds the fintech responsible for all uh, uh, critical compliance, legal risk, money movement uh, frameworks. And so this gets really interesting when you start thinking about like, who's actually responsible for uh, things like CCPA or Reggie or some other things uh, for the compliance folks in the room. Um, so that's what I call the direct model. There's uh, some really interesting economics for the FinTech, for the banks, it's a far stickier engagement relationship model. Uh, and then you get into what I call an indirect banking as a service model. So folks who abstract away the bank partner, they will run on top of multiple banks the fintech only wants to work with a technology provider. They want to have best-in-class APIs and whiz-bang documentation, and that's just not what banks are good at. Um, and so the indirect model offers uh, for a bank a potential for uh, far less work in theory. I would argue it's the same amount of work, whether you're doing direct or indirect, but it allows the bank to focus on one partner relationship managing that partner, holding them accountable to all fintechs running in that program. But now you shift from a three-party model to a four-party model, and your risk increases. So when the regulators show up, they say, hey, who's consumer A sitting inside of fintech B run by partner C? 
And the bank goes, we don't know. And so you can't do that with regulators. So uh, at the end of the day, we're looking at both models, both indirect and direct. To answer your question, uh, for an OCC federally chartered uh, bank, you've got uh, what I would call standard control groups involved. Uh, vault. So you have to go through. Sorry, like the compliance folks in the room. I apologize. So. I am not a compliance person. I'm not a risk person. Uh, I simply want to make sure they get in the room and they understand what we're talking about so that they can weigh in and we can have the proper approvals. So at the end of the day, if you're going to work on these models, you have to have about 10 control groups in the bank show up. Everyone from privacy to data security to risk audit, everyone in between to say, do we actually know what we're talking about? Can we make money at this? Do you approve? Does that approximately? Maybe you look like you wanted to uh, add or, or, or clarify. Oh, no, I think Walt said it perfectly. Um, it's not just technology. A lot of people think of banking as service as, hey, it's APIs, it's that. Yes, that's part of it, but it's a whole program where you need tech, you, you need IT, you need engineers, you need compliance, legal, everyone to weigh in. Um, and I think Amanda, like Unit, probably like knows best about this, but it's like you're delivering a program, that's what FAST is. It's not just APIs that you're delivering. Yeah, and I would say one thing that it's not is the same across every particular vendor, right? So I probably skipped over what Unit actually does when I did my intro. Um, so we're a platform that you know helps uh, various fintechs and then their ultimate end users to move, store, and lend money. And so through that platform, we also build in compliance capabilities into what we offer through the underlying bank partners that we work with. And so actually in our model, even though we're considered a BAS provider in the ecosystem, our model is actually a hybrid of what you just talked about. Um, and so um, we firmly believe in not abstracting away the relationship with the bank, even though we do aggregate the relationships and do bring in multiple fintechs. Um, we do have a, a tri-party agreement. We do make sure that our bank partners are meeting with the underlying clients and know what that relationship is. But we're there to help um, kind of streamline and take away the, the complexities that come along with compliance um, and really help the bank scale and in look at their program in a way that, you know, it's the same, instead of looking at 20 different BSA programs and 20 different compliance management programs as you bring those in, it's one compliance management program that the bank is deeply involved in. And I'm talking to my bank partners, compliance teams on a, you know, weekly basis. And I have a team of 20 people that just do compliance at unit, right? So, um, we're not the same um, as, as a different provider and, and probably a little bit different. I'm sure that you get lumped into the to the BAS ecosystem, but our operating models are very different, both incredibly valuable to the ecosystem. I think that there's um, there's definitely enough lunch to go around for everybody who's in, in the ecosystem because we all serve a different purpose and a different need um, for that. So I think that's my big takeaway is that we're not the same. It's a follow-up. Sorry. Case. I'm totally jumping in. But so what she said is really important, which is when it comes to old school standard money movement, right? That is not banking as a service. Meaning like when you get sponsored by a bank to do ACH, to do card program management, that arguably falls out of the banking as a service use case. Because banking as a service at the end of the day is can I individually ledger activity and get flow down FDIC insurance? Which all of a sudden everyone really cares about FDIC insurance. It's really fascinating. Uh, but uh, this is what makes it so hard for banks looking at this stuff going, hey, I've traditionally done card program management. I'm German exempt. Isn't just my standard old program management card programs. Isn't that good enough? Right. In some use cases, it has been. Right. In consumer fintech, sure. It, when you start getting into enterprise and 
different use cases, I think some of these things get really interesting to start breaking down, like where is it appropriate to actually ledger and hold uh, deposits, which an FBO account really should not be used for, and where is it appropriate to just move money, which is a different set of use cases. Nick, how does this align with sort of how you and modern treasury think about the, you know, the discipline, the ecosystem of banking as a service? Like, do you consider modern treasury to be a banking as a service provider? I guess it really depends on your definition of banking as a service, which we've just kind of covered. I mean, I think to us, you know, modern treasury is built um, to help companies move and track money. That's what we're really good at. We're a software layer. Um, you know, when we think about banking as a service, we have companies who can build a banking as you know, a banking product using modern treasury amongst other service providers on top of you know banking um, rails or you know bank sponsor banks. Um, but I think really for us, it sort of comes back to um, you know what is the company trying to achieve or you know what is their objective of like you know moving money. Um, as Walt said, may not necessarily constitute banking as a service. Um, and for that, there's obviously very you know, special rules and regulations that you need to adhere to. But we do run into you know, similar customers as, as UNIT and some others. Um, you know, our view of the world is you know, we provide a very horizontally kind of flexible you know, platform that you can build on top of. So if you want to build a banking as a service product, in fact, you could build that using modern treasury. I mean, a quick follow-up for you and, and also for Amanda. How do you think about the banks that you choose to partner with to provide those capabilities, right? I mean, there's 4,000 banks in the U.S., depending on who you ask, you know, 100 plus have some flavor of, you know, making a service partner banking, you know, capabilities that they're out there shopping. How do you narrow that down to the, you know, the set of banks that you actually want to partner with to build your business? I wish it was the simplest thing. We could choose them. We don't get to just choose them. It's a lot of hard work. Um, so our business model, as I said, is very much you know, software-driven. The, the objective of Modern Treasury is to allow a company to bring its own banking rails and use our software to help make that all work very efficiently. So generally speaking, a customer will find a customer who has a bank. Um, maybe we already know them. They're a partner bank of ours. or Maybe not. And if they're not, we'll go through the process of doing some diligence to, to figure out if we can work with them or not. For the most part, it really comes back to can the bank support what the customer needs in a programmatic fashion, which doesn't just mean APIs. It can mean simple file-based FTP, SFTP, uh, file transmission, things like that, some very old technologies. But for us, it's mostly about how do we support um, a customer through its existing bank. So that might have some difference. Yeah. For us, it's... Um... I would say it's a pretty in-depth process to to get to that that point. So I won't bore everybody with the with the details. But um, you know, versus in a culture fit, right? Do do we see eye to eye in compliance? Right? We uh, have a famous uh, line that that when we're when we're talking about this is that everything starts and ends with compliance at our company, and so um, which is great for me and my job um, with what I do. But um, we do take it seriously, right? So as we're as we're talking to our bank partners, we want to make sure that there's um, that same level of um, in degree of um, like integrity and and, and and philosophy around the the compliance piece of it um, and then you know just a good like 
in terms of culture, right? Like, do we, do we see eye to eye with the management team? Are we, you know, both in this for a long-term relationship for that? So we spend a lot of time with our bank partners, getting to know them. And, and again, like I said, we're meeting with them on a regular basis and just building that relationship. Um, but then also goes with our client needs. Like our clients are incredibly important to us and we want to make sure that we find good homes for them that, you know, what their use cases is going to match the bank risk appetite, right? For that. So we want to make sure that we have banks that have a, a well-rounded um, risk appetite that can make meet our client needs. Well, on the flip side, how, you know, as a bank, do you think about choosing or vetting the partners that you work with, whether it's a, a platform partner or sort of a direct consumer or business facing fintech, what are sort of the criteria you're looking at? Yeah, so for us, we started at the segment level. Um, is the segment strategically relevant to Valley, right? So I've had multiple folks come and say, hey, seen your stupid tweets, uh, is there something I could do with you? And I'm like, consumer fintech, and they go, yes. And I go, get out of here. Like, go, there are plenty of other better banks to be a consumer fintech sponsor, right? Um, I would say we're pretty early in our hypothesis right now. So we've found pretty significant traction in working with the largest money movers in cannabis because we've built out so much competency in how we bank cannabis directly, right? So. We uh, we're very strong to bank on the deposit side, which means when it comes to how you then layer in money movement, um, it's a strategic moat, right? So it's going to be really hard for like, frankly, candidly, I don't want to go compete with uh, certain sponsor banks that have been doing this for a very long time in certain categories. It's a it's a waste of my time. So I want to be really careful with who are the right folks. Is it is it a good fit? Are we both going to succeed? The last thing I want to do is uh, jeopardize either the big charter or even the partner we work with on a segment we go after together. So definitely makes sense. I mean, one of the uh, topics that has been running through all this is compliance. I know I promised a happy hour, and it, uh, that's not very happy. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, but a lot of the around compliance as it relates to banking as a service so far has focused heavily on BSA AML. Which, of course, is an important area to ensure that you're um, compliant. Uh, but there are plenty of other areas that uh, are relevant for bank fintech partnerships, whether it's Reg E, whether it's consumer protection. Um, you know, how are we thinking about how stakeholders work together to manage all of these risks? So not just BSA, but everything that exists across these different aspects of building uh, you know, a consumer or a business-facing product. I, I mean, Nipa, I'm sure that you encounter this a lot in your day-to-day. -day. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly why Themis exists. I think when people think of compliance, they think of fraud, AML, identity, KYC. It's the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, so we do all the other stuff other than the identity stuff. We do vendor due diligence, complaint management, uh, marketing, which helps with UDAP, Reg B, uh, so there's a lot of other regulations that regulators do care about and that you need to comply with. And so we make it easy. Um, and this is kind of where the experience comes in. Uh, what we did with Themis is, I mean, as a regulator, you kind of know what to look for. So we tried to put as much guidance and knowledge into the tool. I mean, my entire goal for Themis is to educate fintechs to care about compliance. Um, I think banks take too much of the compliance burden. Um, I think also companies like Union also do a lot of the compliance thing, but I really need, I really want fintechs to care about compliance themselves because at any point, like maybe the fintech might become a bank themselves or the fintech might need to find a new bank partner. Like you never know what happens. And 
Uh, that's kind of why what we did with Themis is all encompassing everything non identity related. Um, and yeah, I think it's just important to know, collaborate with your bank about Reg E, which comes in, which Reg E is, for those of you who don't know, it's any complaints coming in from regulators on um, different disputes that happen with any transactions and things like that. But the hard part of this entire BAS, this whole BAS ecosystem is the communication. The compliance part isn't that hard if you know what to do, but it's how do you communicate when the regulator goes to the bank and the bank has to go to the fintech and they get documentation from the fintech to show that they're complying. So it's that entire logistical piece that's kind of a mess. Um, and that's kind of what we're fixing with Themis. But yeah, to your point, there's more to compliance than just identity and KYC. Yes, that's important things that you should care about. You should have a program that does that. But um, there's a lot of other regulations that exist out there. I just add too, like I think, and this goes for whether it's companies like ours who partner with banks, whether it's a, a fintech that goes direct to a bank looking for a relationship. It's really important that the bank understands, obviously, your company, that they understand the space that they're in. Because we see this a lot with, you know, banks are trying to break into fintech or they're trying to become, you know, uh, a grow a business. Now, do they really understand every risk? I would say, like Valley is a great example. They really understand the cannabis space, and there are a handful of other banks. As well, the reason it's important is because if they get it wrong, you're relying on that bank. You can be very quickly, you know, um, looking for a new bank. And we saw this, you know, unfortunately with SVB and some other banks. There was this huge scramble where people were tied to one bank and they had no backup plan or they hadn't got around to it yet. Um, and all of a sudden, their existence is threatened because you know they they don't have a bank who knows how to handle the risk itself. So it's actually really important. As you understand your business and build your business, to actually make sure the bank is comfortable and, and understands all the risks that they're getting into as well. I think sometimes there's some stories out there that are too good to be true. If it sounds too good to be true, it, it very well could be. Um, so do your own diligence too, I would say. Yeah, and don't take the easy way out. I hear a lot of fintechs are like, oh, we want to partner with that bank because they don't really do that much due diligence. They don't check our marketing material. Like, that is not the way you should be thinking. <laughs> you want that bank that is continuously like, Hey, what's going on? What are you doing? Those are the banks that will help your business get to that billion dollar threshold threshold that you should all be looking for. Sorry, one last one. Good point, because it's not just like existential crisis like SVB and, and what happened a couple months ago. It might be as simple as a letter from a regulator and all of a sudden the bank policy changes. And they're like, you know what? We're just going to put this on pause. And all of a sudden, you know, your business is, is you know, out of luck. So uh, we think about that a lot when we partner with banks. It's like, what companies are they trying to uh, you know, attract and do they really understand that space? Because there's no sense in us you know, partnering with a bank that, that can't be around for, for the long term. Well, and Amanda, I'm sure given the number of different bank partners that UNIT works with, that's part of those discussions, right? Of matching, you know, if there's a consumer-facing fintech or a business-facing fintech, depending on you know, who that company's customers are and what their sort of risk profile looks like, one partner, one bank, maybe more or less appropriate than another, I would assume. Exactly. We work, you know, really deeply with, with all of our bank partners to, to kind of come up with a risk appetite statement. And so we know early and often, you know, if we're, if our sales team is, is out meeting with a client and they meet a, a certain profile, we know pretty, pretty, pretty confidently who a good match is going to be for, for that. Um, but then again, we're, we're introducing the bank to the client 
and 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 so there's um, there's there's several layers of uh, what I'll call the matchmaking and relationship building um, that that goes into it to make sure that that it is a good fit and the clients get to interview the bank right and get to meet the bank and ask the the tough questions. Um, and the bank gets to to do the same, you know, and look the management team in the in the eyes to to see that. Um, and then in unit is there to to help facilitate an oversight and have that that piece of it. So we we need to make sure that it's um, that it's a good fit right from the beginning. At this point, you know, most most of the guidance from regulators around how we should think about these relationships is sort of vaguely talking about third-party due diligence and third-party risk management. And not that that is all extremely relevant, but it does tend to be non-specific to sort of what we're discussing today. Is there some sort of additional guidance that would be helpful to see from regulators? I see Walt smirking over there already. Um, you know, whether it's OCC, whether it's consumer protection, you know, is there an opportunity to improve clarity on what the expectations are and what they're looking for? And, and I'm going to start with, with Walt since he was, was smirking at me. Um, so you could ask for permission or you could ask for forgiveness. Um, unfortunately, I have found uh, some of the thinking around you know, regulation in this area to be you know, woefully um, mischaracterized. And so I get nervous of, so uh, I always find it really fascinating that one of the most like sweeping, critically uh, efficient driving uh, regulation came after 9-11 which was Check 21. So if you're a banker, uh, Check 21 was a massive deal uh, to actually drive incredible amount of efficiency, but it came because of a national tragedy, right? So like, there very much feels, and I'm very happy to be wrong, you can come over, pour your beer on my head after this panel, and you don't know what you're talking about. Like, I get nervous that we're too reactive when it comes to how we're thinking about these things instead of being more proactive. Like, FinTechs are here, let's be part of like a very inclusive, thoughtful, do they have the charter? No. Are they responsible for the regulations that banks are? No. Can they do things, right, in that third-party relationship that banks are asking them to do at, in a service provider methodology? Absolutely. And so there are things that regulators can do. I just really hope they put in the time and the thought to really think about how to facilitate that, that model, right? Like I think I go to the UK market, I stood up an integration to faster payments in uh, the UK, it was amazing. Like I did the same thing with UPI in India, it was amazing. Like some of these things don't have to be so rigorously complicated that it feels like the US seems to make it sometimes. Like it can be, who are the counterparties? Are they, you know, do we know who they are? Have we de-risked them? Yes, okay, great. Like it doesn't have to be so complicated. Um, yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, I can jump in. Um, there's so many regulations out there. I mean, we have SEC, we have FINRA, we have OCC, we have Federal Reserve. There's a lot of regulations out there. I don't think we need more regulations, and I think that's the problem. Everyone's like, we need regulations for crypto. I'm like, no, we don't. There's thousands of regulations. Just find out the ones that apply to the crypto space, um, and then add that add, hey, this applies to crypto too. So just because it doesn't specifically say this, uh, this applies to fintechs, this applies to crypto, there's thousands of regulations. The problem is people do not want to comply because it doesn't specifically say this is for crypto or this is for fintechs sometimes. 
but what banks should do is they should look at these fintechs as an extension of the bank, not as a vendor, not as a service provider, but hey, this fintech we're working with is actually our team like within the bank and require them to do the same um, consumer compliance regulations that they would want internally at the bank. Um, and I think that's what's really hard. A lot of the fintechs are dependent on other people to do compliance, and that's not how it should be. The best person to do compliance is a person who's interacting directly with the customer. They know the customer, they understand the transaction activity, they know them better, they've called them, they understand the risk profile, and that's where I think there's a big gap. Everyone is relying too heavily on their bank partner to do all the compliance. But what I think, and what I actually really do think the future is gonna be is, banks will be more in an oversight position where FinTech should be doing all of this work, and then banks will come in maybe quarterly, monthly, and say, let's make sure, kind of like an audit does it, like let's make sure they did X, Y, and Z. Uh, but until that, there's I don't see banks able to handle the business, how fast they're growing right now, to do it all themselves. Um, so right now, yeah, banks are taking the burden, but at some point, it's going to be pushed down to the fintechs. I think these guys had a had really good. I could probably go on for a really long time on uh, on this. There's there's existing frameworks um, that are already out there. I don't think we need to revisit them. I think we need consistency in how they're applied, and that we need to um, kind of raise the 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 just make sure everybody's going through the same type of exams across the agencies, and that this you know that everything's being applied in a consistent manner. And I I think the frameworks are already there. We don't need any more regulation. You heard it here. You heard it here first. Uh, I think I have one more question that I want to hear from these guys on, and then I think we have time for a couple of Q and A's. I think we've we've established uh, the banking system is arguably going through one of its biggest periods of upheaval, probably since 2008, right? And if you look at uh, First Republic stock price, that's probably not done, right? It's going to continue to sort of unwind over the next months, years, you know. How do you see you know, that half of 2023 impacting the banking as a service landscape? That could be banks, it could be platforms, it could be fintechs. You know, there's a lot of things happening from VC funding, um, you know, threat of regulatory response to you know, SVB, signature, et cetera. This talk of choke point 2.0, not that I necessarily like, agree with that analysis. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. It kind of what does it mean for your business from the seat that, that you sit in? Don't panic. Like, seriously, don't panic. Um, I guess I'm, I'll age myself, but I lived through the, you know, the prepaid uh, actions and, and different things that happened, right? Like, it's not that different. You know, we, like, Bancor Meta had you know, actions and, and anybody who was in that space dealt with really difficult exams. We all, we're all still here. We're still innovating. We're still doing the same thing. So yeah, we're going through a, a difficult time, but we'll figure it out. Like it, this industry is incredibly resilient. FinTech's not going to go anywhere and we just have to make sure we follow the rules and we'll evolve. I do think it's going to be really tough on FinTechs. Um, and that's just because a lot of the VC money isn't flowing like it used to be flowing. A lot of the money that when you start up as a fintech, and I'm also guessing this because I have a B2B SaaS, uh, SaaS platform. I'm not a not really a fintech, but a lot is dependent on marketing. And so marketing got really expensive. I mean, I just put a LinkedIn ad up and I'm like, heck, 
I can't believe it's this expensive. But for fintechs, in the beginning, I think marketing is such a big expense. And so if you're not getting that VC funding to flow, and um, I just think it's going to be very hard, especially in the consumer space for a little while, um, just for them. But I think if you're found a good business case, if you have your niche that you already built, um, I think you're good. Just kind of what Amanda say, like follow the rules, do it right, partner with really strong banks like Valley and um, banks like that, because those are the ones that are going to show you how to, they'll, they'll bring you along to make sure that you survive. I mean, they don't want fintechs that are not going to survive part of their portfolio. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's about it. I think for the rest of this year, patience is probably the key thing. Um, what we have seen the fallout from, you know, what happened over the last couple of months is that there's been this huge dislocation. Almost every company, certainly clients of ours, have been looking for new banks, even if they're sticking with ones like maybe SVB, First Citizens, but they're all thinking about like, oh, I need a backup. And so the fallout from that is banks are inundated, a number of them are backed up. Um, they're probably under their own increasing uh, scrutiny right now, whether it's from regulators on some pure, you know, liquidity and balance sheet, you know, reviews versus, you know, compliance and, uh, you know, fintech programs. So I think you're going to find that things will be slower. Um, there will be an opportunity for companies who get it right, though, to come out of this and have really strong relationships with their bank and be in a good position. But I think, unfortunately, patience is it's going to be, it's just going to be a little slower this year. Which is not what I know what a lot of fintech founders and companies want to hear, but sometimes that is the reality. Some really good things said. Um, it felt like a slightly, like a little Valley commercial at times. That was awesome. You did great. That was awesome. Um, you know, when I look at my pipeline, um, I think, you know, there's never been more demand for being more efficient with how money moves. Um, so regardless of, uh, and this feels weird saying this as a someone working for a bank, regardless of the banking climate, um, at the end of the day, people are looking to move money more efficiently, safely, reliably. And if you're a bank who knows how to do that at scale, you have a competitive advantage. And so, um, so I get super excited about uh, where we're headed, the partners we're using to help power us uh, to get there. And uh, I just see massive opportunity. So. Amazing. I think we have time for a couple of questions and then, uh, and then I need a beer. Um, uh, let's say, anyone? Um, maybe we'll start this one. Um, how do you think about a situation where end user A is an international user? So the question is for Walt, how do you think about situations where the end user is international? So probably some of the risk components to that. I'm going to take off my Valley hat. I'm going to put on my old Rapid hat. So, so when we were doing this at Rapid, I got to be careful. Um, so there are varying degrees of know your customer in other countries. It was actually really interesting. If you look at how like our regulatory framework kind of flowed down into other countries, um, India is actually really interesting how they kind of adopted uh, some of these models very quickly. Other countries have been slower and more reticent. So when it comes to money movement, it's really important to understand counterparty risk. We took a certain approach using aggregators like Trulio and trying to work with different kind of ways to understand counterparty risk. At the end of the day, if you are a money mover, uh, you are you are responsible for that risk associated with 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 that movement. And so there are things like in the ISO 20022 file, you get a lot more data to really understand. Like you could even pass driver's license in there. Um, so. 
This is a long-winded way of saying each country has varying levels of quality and completeness of saying, do I actually know who this individual is? And am, am I able to ascertain enough of a risk score to actually push money to that person? This is why Western Union is actually really hard to disrupt because they know who people are. Just like Walmart does in Mexico, people show up, they give money out, they know who they are, they see their driver's license. Solving this from like a digital perspective is actually much more harder than it sounds because the databases haven't been built out yet. The technology requirements from the, however, the state kind of compliance risk frameworks have, they're not all, they're not all consistent. So you got to really take it on a country by country basis and really think about like, how am I solving identity, which is why cards in certain countries have like solved all this for banks. So long winded answer. Sorry. That's a, that's a tough question. So. Okay, another question. Uh, how do you define path uh, to profitability given that 99% practice of all fintechs are you know, operated as blocks and that you see people that have to drive regulations around the current fintech sectors in much more distributed? Uh, how do you define people trying to see where on their platform the various market segments that they get into? How does it to the yeah. Yeah. Any, uh, any volunteers for that question? So I love that question because uh, this is exactly what I get beat up on on my PL. So at the end of the day, uh, I'm not in the business. So unlike a VC, I can't make bets with other people's money. Like if I make a bad choice, CEO is going to jail or, right, like, or I'm getting fired. So I have zero interest, and I tell folks all the time, I don't work with zero to one folks. You have to be a scaled business. I have to understand your model, right? Which all of a sudden disqualifies a bunch of folks, right? Right? So, no disrespect, a lot of great ideas, keep building, awesome. Go do it on other banks. We're not up for them, right? Like, sorry, I know I killed like 90% of my leads. It's fine. I don't want to work with you. It's not hard feelings. I love you. God bless. Connect on Twitter, whatever. Like, so, so at the end of the day, right? Are we serving the same segment? Is it strategically relevant to the bank? Can you do it more efficiently? Right? Can you do it at scale? Okay, now we should chat. That's a different. That's a different discussion, right? So I do a very good job disqualifying folks early because we're not a good consumer fintech bank. There's lots of other banks to do that, right? Go do that, right? Does that make sense? I think we'll do one more. Not too long. Not at all. That's good. So, God bless you. I've been a couple times, but I'm just curious from like the fintech perspective, like, do you think multi bank and like built in redundancy has become like a maneuver to save the state paradigm for any scaling of fintech? Like, you know, and like operational risk aside, if you go to it, like you're only getting one consent order away from being in a real bad place, and you never really know. Like the full business suit, I think it's like those inherently a black box. Yeah. Is that just sort of the new, the new thing? Yeah, I think it is. Um, so even up until two o'clock on the Thursday, that if everything went down with Silicon Valley Bank, I was thinking this is overblown. This is not really as big of a deal as people are making it out to be. By about 3 30 in the afternoon, when clients had started calling in, and frankly, some of our bank partners who were telling us, hey, we're standing up 24 by 7 groups around the world to basically help because we think there's going to be an event. Um, it was like, oh, okay, this is real. And I think for everybody, it became very real very quickly. 
in the following since then, four to six weeks, whatever it is, um, every company we've talked to, and frankly, every bank that we've talked to and partner with, understand that resiliency in the products that you operate, like it doesn't just mean like, well, SVB you know, almost went under or, or technically did go under. Um, it could be a disruption to one of your bank partners where there's a technology outage or there's a cyber attack or there is some other thing that goes wrong. Um, think about like a payroll company. You cannot miss payroll, right? If you are reliant on a bank and a bank rail to make that payment, you need redundancy and you need to have a plan. Now, most companies at scale have that on some level, and thankfully we got through this. But I was thinking on that Sunday evening, we were sort of in a kind of a war room situation. There's a lot of talk about the FDIC coming in and saving depositors and you know, everybody's going to get their money back. You know, the Little League in Palo Alto is going to get their money back and you know, we're going to take care of everybody. Um, but it, there wasn't a lot of talk at the time about uh, the rails coming back on. And I don't know how many fintechs SVB support. It's probably in the thousands. But if those rails didn't come back up and if the bank didn't come back up, all of a sudden, almost all of them were probably going to go out of business, if, not for, if nothing else, for the reputational risk that people would be like, why? Well, I don't really trust this fintech because they didn't make my payments. So to answer your question, yes, every company we're talking to at the moment is thinking about multi-bank redundancy. If money movement is part of the product, you have to have a backup. And to their credit, most banks, certainly the ones I think reputation, high reputation banks that we partner with, they're also advising customers. Yeah, you need a backup. You need a plan. You need to have more than one because things do break, unfortunately. Yeah, I think one of the topics people just don't talk about enough is concentration risk on both sides, banks and fintechs. Fintechs, when you're just dealing with one bank, um, the, the bank partner, if the regulator comes in and is like, hey, you're not doing well, stop your partnerships. Like In 60 days, you'll have to look for another bank, and it's not easy finding a bank in 60 days, partnering with them. It's a long process. So I think fintechs should diversify, get multiple bank partners. Also, banks, when they're getting these fintechs, they should look at different industries and sectors because in case one sector doesn't fall out, you have that hedge against it. So I think concentration risk is just so important with vendors, partners, everything that you do. And I think for a fintech to be smart in the beginning, I would have everything kind of lined up as like your backups, your hedges, all that stuff will just make you a stronger uh, fintech in the, uh, in the future. That's why we have multiple banks. <laughs> All right, I mean, what I want to know is how much money did the Palo Alto Little League bank account have? It was reported in the press. It was like a shocking amount of money. Yeah, that is, I, I need a new line of work. Look it up. Um, okay, I want to thank everybody again, all of my panelists. Thank you so much for being such good sports and doing this on a, on a Wednesday evening after a long day. Thank you to the sponsors, Valley Bank. Call up Walt if you have a consumer fintech. He's ready to work with you. Uh, and, of course, Units. Uh, also, Paul Amanda, she's ready to work with you. Um, and Rise, uh, and Rise for hosting us. Thank you, everybody. Uh, go grab a wine, grab a beer. I will be out there. You need one first. Yeah, right. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>